black cross-class solidarity ends up being reoriented, right? Where, where instead of a, a black cross-class solidarity, uh, and, when, and when we talk about class and black communities, it's always, it's always weird because it's not like black people own, really own anything. For sure. But y'all know what I'm yep. talking about. There was a there was a, a, a limited moment where black cross class solidarity could lead to uh, a default orientation towards black working class interests, right? But then once you've got the radical uh, the radical element uh, significantly suppressed, and then the liberal element narrowed, whatever cross class solidarity uh, you generate is going to be on the terms of a segment of that upper class that is largely interested in their own specific interests and articulating their own specific interests as the interests of the group as a whole. Fabulous Spence, professor of political science at John Hoskins University. He joined my co-host Toussaint Lossier and myself on this episode of Black Work Talk. We had a fascinating conversation about today's political situation the need to understand the impact of the neoliberal turn on black politics and the challenges facing the black left. You enjoy what follows. But before we get to that conversation, I want to remind you, we are starting the last week of our three week fundraising campaign. Our goal is to get 60 new sustainers. Since we began this campaign, many of you have stepped up and become sustainers. Others have increased your contributions. Thanks a lot, people. We need more of you to do the same. Since we started Black Work Talk, some important recurring monetary costs have increased. In addition, in thinking about our next season, we're looking at some changes where we supplement our current single guest interview format and include episodes that go deeper into campaigns, organizations, and neighborhoods, interviewing multiple key players who are driving efforts to build power with Black working people and radically change our political economy. Covering our costs and expanding the podcast requires more revenue, and that means more support from you. Once again, our goal is 60 new sustainers. Please go to Patreon at www.patreon.com. Look for Black Work Talk and sign up to be a monthly contributor. If you can only make a one-time contribution, that is fine. Let's get to this episode of Lester. Hey folks, Stephen Pitts here of Black Work Talk. And I'm here with my co-host, Tucson Lossier. What's up, Tucson? How you doing, man? Hey, how you doing? I'm excited, man. This is our first episode of our new miniseries on the Black Left. Yep. So thanks for joining me, man. This should be a, be a cool cool couple episodes, man. So I appreciate that. No problem, man. I'm glad to be here. Now, before we get started, though, man, I want to check out your thoughts on something. Um, this is more of maybe more of a Bay Area story at some level, but has some national sure. implications. You know, this week they had a recall election in San Francisco for three school board members. And they were all three were recalled by overwhelming numbers. Mm-hmm. And what the narrative kind of is, is a couple of things. One, that the school board in San Francisco was more interested in being woke, quote unquote, than dealing with kids. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also like a, 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 a second narrative that may or may not be secondary or primary in terms of how Asian Americans deal with stuff. Hmm. Because there's a concern about, um, there's a, an attempt to change how folks got into one of the better public high schools out here, Lowell High School. And because it was, it was more of a 
of a quote unquote merit based system before, large numbers of Asians and whites were in the school. Mm-hmm. People changing the process that cut back the whites and Asians in there. So a lot of things happened and stuff was stirred up and so forth and recall went sure. down and boom. Had you heard much about that? What's your thoughts on that, man? Yeah, it's a it's it's striking because I I haven't followed that case too closely. You, to be honest, I've been tracking some of what's been happening in Oakland. There was a vote uh, earlier this month on um, closing a number of the uh, uh, a number of the schools in Oakland. Obviously, um, following a significant amount of competition with some of the charter schools that have been opening up, uh, there was a hunger strike by a number of teachers trying to prevent the closure of those schools, and there's a potential vote kind of a revote coming up in the next couple of weeks that might revisit that question of school closures. And one of the reasons I'm looking forward to this conversation is I think the politics around schools and school access oftentimes gets talked about at just a level of kind of education policy. And the guest that we have today has been playing a key role in, in translating not only how Education is one of a host of issues that has to do with the kind of neoliberal turn and what could be called the neoliberal turn in black politics, but also really opening up opportunities to think about not only are we dealing with a situation where schools are treated in a way that tries to kind of subject them to market principles. And this is, I think, part of what motivated, right? Some of the concerns from parents is like this identification with schools, not as sort of laboratories for democracy or serving the purpose of training citizens, but really as sort of like the the first stepping stone to ensuring that their children have a, you know, like a well-paying career or what have you, that that kind of very business-like approach to education has been a key aspect of its transformation. And in doing so, has kind of undermined the role that schools play in terms of providing like a real uh, foundation for kind of community coherence. And I think the San Francisco example speaks to that a little bit in terms of this pushback against sort of wokeness at the school board level and this real sense of competition in terms of who gets into the best school, but also more broadly around the country with the expansion of charter schools and the closure of public schools, traditional public schools, the ways in which, yeah, this is just another sort of facet of the landscape of kind of you know the ways in which neoliberal policies are being carried out and in many ways we get we 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 have a front row seat in terms of how much kind of centrist and liberal black political figures are playing a key part in helping to roll that out i want to pivot to to our guest lester in a second but i want to say one last thing on this i think there's kind of two different i don't say parts of the intervention you might say Mm -hmm. we're most clear about the elite intervention Mm-hmm. and imposing market principles on, on any number of institutions. But I think what allows their efforts to take root is actually the failures, failures of those institutions. Yep. And oftentimes we focus on the, the machinations of the elite and we sometimes don't get a clear sense of how the institutions aren't working well. Yep. And therefore, as, as working people kind of drop out in many ways, either frequently they drop out or they don't get engaged, Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just, it's just a, the tone for a lot of shit to be raised, basically. Yeah. I mean, that's partially what's happening in San Francisco, at least, and all, um, in the sense that there are a lot of things happening, naming, renaming schools, mm-hmm. changing murals, and and people saw that not being germane to education. That could be a conversation, by the way. But I think it's yeah. important to look at both the, the, the way the elite tries to maneuver institutions into deeper into their back pockets, 
but also how the institutions also have, haven't, haven't served well people mm-hmm. themselves. I always, always say that, you know, back in the 60s, we had a critique of the state. Yeah. Um, that's largely correct, by the way. And, and, and it, it failed in many ways. But because we weren't able to actually turn it in a good direction, the right could come in and turn it to their direction itself. But I, I do want to pivot and, and, and go to our guest. Today, we have Lester Spence on. Lester, how you doing, man? Cold chilling, man. Cold chilling. That, that's cool. Um, now, Lester is professor of political science at John, John Hoskins. And I, I've been following your stuff, man, for, for a long time. And so it's finally good to go beyond just the following stuff and see you periodically here and there, actually sit down and wrap you through some. I think your work is incredibly important um, on a number of dimensions, both in terms of trying to get a sense of, of looking at political economy and black folks and class and black folks. And I think it's important because with this kind of opening up our mini series on the black left, you know, my sense is that the topic is important, not because it's important on ideas in the ideology. It's important because we're trying to change the world now. Okay. And so it's important to root this question of black left and its power or lack thereof in this question of what's actually happening around us. So I'm glad you can come on, man. It should be a good time to sit down and talk some. So appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, I'm with it. It should be dope. Quick question. How do you define the black left? I define it as a tendency within black communities that is anti-capitalist, that believes generally in, or at least is highly, highly critical of capitalism. And it believes that the best way to create conditions where black people can thrive is, uh, is if the means of production are actually controlled by black communities, right? That's, that's the farthest end. If you, if you want to make it, if you want to narrow that, if you want to uh, bring that a little bit closer to where we are, I'd say that, you know, they believe that whatever wealth is produced in the market should be owned by, uh, either owned by or distributed largely to, or at the very least, uh, should be um, this, this either distributed to or it should be um, decisions about it should be made by black communities. That's kind of a simple, a, a simple yet complicated way to think about it. And, I, and, I, and as I was, I was and it's funny because as we, as I, I knew I was coming on here, for me, the question of how we define the black left is an important one. But I've been thinking about where we locate them. Right. So where where would we where do we institutionally find the black left? Right. So there was a moment in time where we could define the black left really broadly or narrowly, but we could identify individuals and institutions associated with that tendency. And and the individuals and institutions associated with that tendency had a certain amount of authority within black communities. But in part because of shifts in economics, shifts in politics, and shifts in culture, we're now, we, we now no longer see that, right? So you, I can point to a figure like a Cori Bush in St. Louis and say that that's somebody on the left. I can point to the woman and uh, the sister in Buffalo who barely became, who, who just was this, just really, really close to becoming a mayor of Buffalo. India Walton. India Walton. India Walton. I can identify her on the left. Uh, if we could extend it, we could think about Chokeway in Jackson, Mississippi as being on a certain part of the left. But if we're looking at political officials, 
we're looking at a really small number, right? It's, on the other hand, if we move to the academy, we can identify a range of folk, right? So we can identify somebody like a Cedric Johnson, somebody like an Adolph Reed, they represent one tendency. We can identify somebody like Kiangi Amata Taylor and Barbara Ransby and maybe Kathy, not maybe, Kathy Cohen, they're, they're in another tendency, right? It's really easy to do it in the academy. It's harder to do it in, in, in electoral politics. It's harder to do it in institutions like black churches. And then it's harder to do it when we extend outward to civil rights organizations. That's a really important point and kind of ties together a lot of the themes of, the, of this show and the miniseries, that the question is, this is to change the world. How, how do you do that? It requires power. And, and so it's one thing to have a bunch of you know, left folk having defined it better now, okay, in the academy. And the answer my question might be, well, who cares? What does it mean in terms of actual black folks versus the, la- the inability to talk about black folks who are left situated in other settings where the capacity existed to exert more power? So that's, that's an important thing to talk about. But I mentioned power roughly, and, and, and kind of one assumption we have here is that, that the black left, the black activists, have inadequate amounts of power today. And if you look at simply at a narrow kind of scope, look at black politics, that black liberals and centrists have more power than black leftists. But how do you find power, though, man? So I'm going to come back to the black liberals and centrists part uh, in a second. But so I'm a political scientist. And when we think about political development over time, what we're, th- what we, what we're thinking about are durable shifts in, how, in governing authority and how government functions, right? So we could say that something like Congress doesn't behave the way it used to uh, as, a, as a result in shifts the way Congress works. We can say that urban, that city, big city, big city mayors don't have the power to govern that they used to because of shifts in uh, in political economy, right? I think that idea and shifts in governing authority, even though we're thinking, I'm thinking first and foremost about political institutions, we can apply that to other, uh, to the economic arena, uh, and we can apply that to the social culture arena as well. It's like the power to generate durable shifts in that arena, right? The power to generate durable shifts, for example, in and how we think about how the market should function and how the market actually does function. You know, uh, the role of labor, you know, durable shifts and how, for example, if we think about uh, all of us consume uh, black uh, popular culture in one way or another, durable shifts in how black popular culture articulates politics when it actually when it actually does. Thinking about something like the, the Super Bowl thing that that um, that folk just did this past weekend. Right. So that's how I think about power. So thinking about power in that way really gives us uh, a really empirical way to see where we are, where we were. And that also gives us a sense of how we should think about where we want to go. What would be a what would be a good way? How would we know whether we were gaining ground or losing or just maintaining? And given where we are, given that things are so, so they seem to be shifting Underneath our feet, we're in the middle of world alter of a world altering phenomenon. Being able to think about that is not just uh, empirically important, but it's also politically important. I like the way you threw in the, the idea of being durable. A lot of times you get caught up in the moment, right? And you get something that's really hot and sexy and cool, and also brings some sort of changes. 
And the question of those changes durable, and that could be defined more clearly if you want to, to be honest, or the more transitory. And I think oftentimes they get wrapped up in the temporary stuff and we don't get, we talk about the issues of durability a lot. That's really good, man. It's really good. You mentioned you want to jump back to the black liberals and centrists. I'm I'm really known for my work on uh, on the on the neoliberal term specifically as it relates to to uh, black politics, and that centrist language really I'm not sure how much it works in most of the arenas of black political life that that we're dealing with. Now, if we now I mentioned Congress a little bit ago, it actually does help us to understand somebody like a a, a, a James Clyburn. Right out of South Carolina, he is not a ne- he is not really a neoliberal, although, although he's been basically you know he's kind of sort of bought and paid for by uh, big pharma. He is kind of a black centrist, but with that exception, I think you know. And, and then on and then if we think about black liberals, I don't really know how much you know. We've got a larger liberal tendency than we once had. And when I talk about liberal, now I'm talking about people who really believe in the market, but would want us to have something like uh, something closer to a New Deal arrangement, where we where we provide a relatively robust uh, welfare state. Now it used to be that because of the neoliberal term, we didn't even have that many people who had those ideas. Now, in, in, as far as black mass public, if you look public opinion, black people have always been liberal like that. But as far as black politicians, you know, black policymakers, people who do what popular culture, if you look at hip hop, we haven't even had them, you know, so it's really been this neoliberal tendency that's been dominant. And then every now and then we've got folks like a Clyburn who are like maybe a centrist or a conservative. And then every now and then we had this liberal tendency, the academy is a different thing. But now as a result of Black Lives Matter protests, what we've got for the first time is a really robust uh, black liberal tendency and then a growing black left tendency. Hmm. And can I ask, in addition to Black Lives Matter, to what degree do you think some of those shifts reflect uh, dynamics in, in terms of the impact of class on black politics? Um, is it is that something that's just attributable to kind of the waves of movement mobilization that we've seen take place? Are there any aspects of those political differences that are reflective of kind of class tensions within the Black community? That's a great question. So I think, so what the neoliberal turn, there's an aspect of the neoliberal turn that I think we don't talk about enough. So we we talk about how the neoliberal turn increases the size and the scope of the carceral state. And that leads to significantly increased levels of mass incarceration. And then that leads to the increased use of police as either agents of social control in the case of big time cities or agents of revenue generation in the case of places like Ferguson. But what we don't talk about enough is the effect that turn has black radical slash liberal development. That turn comes around the same time where the state comes down hard on black radical elements. And then it comes down hard on the ability of black liberal tendencies to exert ideas about the relationship between what the relationship between the welfare state 
and the market should be in, in in terms of policy. Like they're articulating them, but when it comes to electing, like we've got all these black mayors with liberal tendencies that in the 70s and then the 80s, they come, uh, they run smack dab into this wall that basically reduces, significantly reduces their ability to even articulate kind of a, a, a an argument that taxes should be used for progressive ends. So when you've got that turn basically killing uh, or really, 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 really suppressing black radicalism and then really, really narrowing black liberal imaginations and 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 that and then replacing those elements with neoliberal ones, you create these conditions where what happens is is that black cross class solidarity ends up being reoriented. Right. Where where instead of a, a black cross class solidarity, uh, and when and when we talk about class and black communities, it's always it's always weird because it's not like black people own really own anything for sure. But y'all know what I'm yep. talking about. There was a there was a, a a limited moment where black cross class solidarity could lead to uh, a default orientation towards black working class interests, right? But then once you've got the radical uh, the radical element uh, significantly suppressed, and then the liberal element narrowed. Whatever cross-class solidarity uh, you generate is going to be on the terms of a segment of that upper class that is largely interested in their own specific interests and articulating their own specific interests as the interests of the group as a whole. Now, it's important. I, I add that last. I, 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 I hint that there's a possibility of this other way to think about it. Because if you think about that black left that comes out of the academy, if you're thinking about Cedric, if you're thinking about Adolf, if you're thinking about Barbara, if you're thinking about Kathy, if you're thinking about Kianga, none of those folk are broke. Right. Like if you if you were to situate them, they're all members of what what uh, what Adolf and uh, what Adolf really calls that black professional managerial managerial class. Then none of none of us. I mean, I'm I'm a member of that class. Right. So so you've got these forces that render the people within that professional managerial class who would or the people in the institutions that could potentially knit a black cross class solidarity around along different axes. You, you render them that tendency becomes far smaller. And then whatever tendencies exist among black working class populations, because you can imagine because. At best, it's supposed to come from the other way around, where black working class institutions are the ones orienting that you know they they they've been hamstrung. Mm. I want to put the last piece about by the black working class institutions, man. We had Will Jones on last last episode, and Will talked about the role of black unionists in mobilizing for the march on Washington in '63, and he spoke of one of the strengths in their capacity to do so was because of their ties to unions, and therefore black working class people. And also because of, of the strength of unions back in the day that you had, you know, industrial councils in the NAACP. And so they had kind of bridge into other groups where they could exert some power and influence. And when I hear you talk about the kind of battle on ideas that, that exist and, and the, the potential influence of, I'll call it the black professions right now, okay? It, it, it seems to me that that is some level 
the power of that strata of folk to be influential is linked to the lack of power of black working class folk. And, and so I think to me, it's an important thing to point out, point out there that, that we have not only this rise in the academy, but also the decline in institutions and organizations that could at least be a spokespersons represent the interest of, of, of black workers. Yeah, that's important yes. to put out there. That's that's really 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 important because they happen at the same time. You know, they happen at the same time. They're part of the same general project, right? So one way to think about it is that uh, if you look at from 1970 to now, so 1970 or so, I think most of the country's GDP came from the manufacturing sector or a big chunk of it. Uh, by like 1990 or so, a big chunk of uh, GDP or whatever comes from finance, insurance, and real estate, right? If you think about a university, like a public university like Michigan, where I went, uh, a big chunk of their revenue, revenue to state, you could call it that, you know, in the early 70s came from, you know, taxes and it, it was a really a state project. Now, a university like the University of Michigan is public, but in one way is public in only name only. And, it, and as much as most of their resources now come from private endowments. And if you think about where those endowments, you know, pe the people are putting money in those endowments, it's the wealthy. And when the manufacturing sector decreases in its role in the American economy, you have union enrollment drop like a rock. And then the power that unions have, the power to organize that's given to them in part by the state, you see that decrease, right? So what you have is you have a condition where a city like in Detroit or, or Baltimore, where in 1960, 1970, most of those uh, folk are involved in a union in one way or the other, you fast forward and very, very little of them, uh, very few of them are. And that has all types of political consequences. You know, Toussaint raised a question about class and, and, and black politics, and you were talking about that. One thing I, I thought about, and I appreciate some of your work, Lester, in looking at, at policing, because um, oftentimes the way we, we mean kind of mass black politics, where we articulate policing, is through a purely racial lens. But remember, you, you had a, a, I mean, I, I guess things guys are right. Tell me if I'm wrong now. But you had a study you looked at at police activity in Baltimore. And my memory is that, at least I've been saying what you said, at least, okay? The, the pissed version of Spence, okay? Is <laughs> that the research shows that the two main places that the police are active are in the poor segments of Baltimore and defending downtown. And so that whole, to me, that's important add-on to the conversation it takes it away from looking at policing just through a, a narrow racial lens and brings in the question of political economy and class as well. Yeah. Now, now it's important to know that there's actually a benefit. And one of the benefits of articulating police as a racial dynamic is that it actually does generate that cross-class solidarity I've been talking about, right? So the one way to think about it LeBron James may not be worth a billion dollars now, but he's probably going to be worth a billion dollars within the next 10 years, right? Uh, you think about those basketball players who engaged in a work stoppage. They can articulate themselves as potentially being the victim of police violence, but it's highly, it's, it's possible, but it's highly unlikely. There's a reason why why the victims of the most egregious forms of police violence have been black and working class. And if you think about, if you drill down, they've got 
really, really weak links to the economy. Like Eric Garner was selling loose cigarettes when he was when he was um, murdered by New York City police. So we we do have to articulate that there. What what articulating it as a black thing does is it enables for black people who are connected to the eco uh, economy in all these different ways to fight for black working class folk. That's a benefit that we miss when we when we significantly and I've done it where we just go at folk and say okay it's not no racial thing it's not a racial thing you're getting it wrong. The challenge is to take the next step and get them to understand that yes, there is a racial dynamic to this, but there's a reason why if you look at how police really function and drill down, it's not you necessarily. It's not going to be LeBron's kid. It's not going to be Dwayne Wade's kid. It's going to be the working class kid in Miami. It's going to be the working class black kid or, or I'm sorry, adult in, in Los Angeles, in Compton somewhere, right? And, and the reason... That is going to be them is because police aren't just an entity created to manage, quote unquote, race relations. And that's a term, probably the first time I've ever even used that term in a conversation like this. But it's also to manage class dynamics within metropolitan areas. It's funny because it's like, I think the shorthand way of talking about it these days is police started as slave catchers, right? And people say that as if slavery was just a racial project yeah. without talking about slavery as actually like, like enslaved people are workers, yeah. right? And what happens if you have somebody who's, who's, who's valuable capital, right? Who, if we're talking about uh, a woman who's enslaved, who has a potential to produce more workers, yeah. right? Um, who can be invested in, right? All these things, it just drills down our understanding of how these dynamics work, how these power dynamics work in a way that kind of evacuates questions of political economy from the conversation. Yeah, yeah. So then the question becomes, okay, how do we, so this is where we are, you know, so the first time, and it, it, the more you think about it, it's really deep. You have black people, and I'm thinking about that, you know, and the reason I'm thinking about this is because I've been, I just wrote this uh, pop culture and politics piece. Think about the NBA and the WNBA had a work stoppage. Now, the WNBA's wage dynamics are very different. But those NBA folk, Giannis, I don't know what is. I mean, G we can Google it. Giannis's contract is in, the, is in the hundreds of millions of dollars. We have people who are millionaires like we have never seen before saying, we're not going to work until you deal with this. So how now their now their politics on a range of other things aren't what we want, but but they did that. So how do we take that and then move it to the next step? Right, that's the question. Now that that's one question, and then the other question is, how did that dynamic move us from a dynamic where the central tendency in black politics was neoliberal mm -hmm. to a dynamic where the central tendency in black politics? And pol American politics in general is far more liberal than it was. That is a durable shift. Mm -hmm. So I want to get to that in a second, man. I want, I want to probe a little more on the on what you said in terms of the value of expressing policing from a racial perspective and developing cross-class alliances. I want to kind of pick that a little bit more. 
I clearly get the benefits, and I, I liked how you how you raised it. I appreciate that a lot. That's my growth in the conversation, man. My concern is what happens as an outcome given current power dynamics, you know, and and so to be really kind of sharp and narrow, I, I describe for you have kind of culture elite, maybe because of their sports or their entertainers and so forth. And because for both real and performative reasons, they become active, okay? Because of their kind of power that they, they have, they can diverse stuff. And so Zay, what does Jay-Z does? He's simply time for no, no time to end protest and have more musical shows, right? And so, and so there's this capacity to, to take the real problems that black and black folk are facing and divert it in ways that don't solve those problems. And, and, and so it's a complicated dance. I mean, when I was younger, it would have been a sharp either or, but my old age is not quite an either or situation. But when I, I want us to talk through how we handle those sort of trade-offs, those kind of contradictions in ways where it falls better on our side. And when you mentioned the idea of, I think you said, how do we get them to understand to me, it's less, uh, and I say you said that, by the way, but it's less a, a conversational understanding. It's more how to express black worker power. They see what's happening. So, so how, how do we talk about racial things in a way that results in deeper solutions? So not getting a black guy head of the police department or, get it, or getting just getting more cameras and those sort of things. But we want to look more deep at the issue of, of public safety from perspective of a black woman class people. And that's, that to me is more than just the conversation. It's actually having boots on the ground, groups groups on the ground in order to shift the conversation a lot. Yeah, yeah, I agree, right? So so then, so once you, so that's the first thing. So you talk about that durable, what looks to be a durable shift. And again, it's important to note, it's not just, we're not just talking about black politics, we're talking about American politics. So, you know, it's worth actually thinking about, it's worth not just thinking about, we can go back to November 1st, 2020. And we can look at a range of figures on the left, including me, and find statements that we all made about if Biden won, what his likely approach would be. And then we can fast forward to December 15th, January 15th, and we're all like, what what he's doing what <laughs> like for real like ser seriously like none of us would have predicted that none of us would have predicted that now to be fair some of us aren't in the prediction game but if you're a social scientist if we're talking about again that academic tendency the social scientists are in the prediction game we might not like all aspects of it but, you know, none of us would have predicted that. So we have to talk about that. We have to understand that shift as a durable, it, it appears to be a durable shift that actually generated gains in as much as black life is better and life is better under liberal than neoliberal dynamics, right? But then after it's like, okay, so what happened, what now needs to happen to make that liberal shift a shift that's a left shift. And then that gets to what is the nature of black life in cities like Baltimore and cities like Detroit. So if you, for example, if union membership has dropped like a rock, then it means, okay, one thing is 
A, where is union membership still strong? Like you think about something like, and, and that's still like in, in, uh, in teachers unions and in public workers, right? But the other thing is like, okay, what are the existing organizational tendencies in black communities? Because it's not that they don't, they don't have any. It's just that they don't have the ones that quite existed in the 60s and 70s. So clearly, listen, you missed my piece I had on November 1, 2020. I said that Biden be the new, the new FDR. You missed that piece? But I'll put you on, on my newsletter. You get it more often. You see those things happen, okay? <laughs> but seriously, I mean, I mean, clearly you're right, man. But, but when you talked about the whole issue of keep pushing the movement to the left in durable ways, I don't think that you can have, and I hadn't thought about what teachers mentioned, by the way, man. It's kind of come up maybe half-baked. I'm not clear that you can have a durable shift in black politics today well, some associated shift in a larger body politic. It seems to me that, that if you, that part of the limitations of, of durable shifts are what actually can change. And what actually can change is, is constrained by large set of politics. And so when our president is not Joe Biden, but Joe Manchin, okay, that limits what can actually be done. And so at some point, the idea of a durable shift and outcomes for black folks requires a shift in the larger body politic as well. And that's to me why, not to get back into the idea of policing and race, it's a complicated dance. Because given the current situation, the higher we raise the racial level of stuff, presentation of stuff, you're gonna lose some of the, the, the possible allies in the movement forward. This is, to me, it's a complicated dance. And so there's a lot of white folks in Northwest part of this country get wrapped up in jail and prisons and drugs. And, and their story isn't told at all because for a lot of reasons. And as long as we keep talking about policing as only a black thing, not all trying to ignore disproportionality at all, then they won't see their lives being talked about at all. And so, it's a, it's a, so the first thing I was going to put out is just, just the question of, can you have a durable improvement in black quality of life, a durable shift in black politics without some sort of shift. Doesn't have to be the same, by the way, but some shift in, shift in larger black, larger set of politics. So that's a, a great question. And that's something uh, a number of us have struggled with. I know I've struggled with, you know, to the extent I think about, uh, I don't just think about Baltimore as a place of research, but as a, as, as a site for political action. You know, when I talk about this in public, I you know, I, I'm pretty clear about it. It's like I, I have a sense of what would happen to what would need to happen to move Baltimore in a direction that we all might want. But as soon as I'm outside of Baltimore County, where it becomes, you know, majority white and it's largely rural, you know, with the exception of Prince George County, the other side of the state, it's like, I, you know, I don't I don't I don't know what to I don't know what to do there. You know, and the thing is, is one of the things that we know that unions provided for was union unions created the space for cross-racial intra-class alliances that were geographically dispersed. And by that, I mean, even though most of the people, a big chunk of the people who worked at the plant my dad worked, you know, didn't live that far away from the plant, you actually had a lot of folk coming from different areas. You did have people, and you had people from uh, from segregated white communities and, se and people from segregated black communities working within the same plant. And that did generate a certain type of 
of political sensibility. But if that stuff doesn't exist, if you don't have people working together, uh, although as I'm thinking about it, maybe a place like Amazon looms large and what's what, what's happening in, in uh, logistics sites for Amazon. But if you don't have people working together, I don't know how you like just just saying policing is not a black thing isn't enough. The question you just asked asked to me, the framing of it was, if we change how policing is framed, then we'll get more people involved. I mean, we had, I, I don't, I don't know if it functions like that. You're right. It doesn't. I shouldn't, I was wrong to frame it that way, to say it that way. Um, but, but I know, you know, but I, I know the question you're asking. So, so, so we know that policing is not a racial project. You know, it's, it's really kind of a, a race class. There's a race class project at best. Or it's a class project that's disproportionately black in some views. I don't. I don't agree with that view. But I. But you know that view exists. There are people who are being policed and being brutalized in areas that have no black people in them, have no Latino uh, uh, folk in them. But although there is some organizing in those instances, there's not as much organizing in those instances as there are in black communities. You know, how do we it seems to me that we have to, you know, to really push the the argument you're the question you're asking is, is how do we generate the dynamic where they're organizing around these issues as well that then generates the potential for cross racial alliances? And I don't have an answer to that. I don't I, I, I don't have an answer to that. I don't know. I think. At least acknowledging the question is useful, and I appreciated the the way that you framed it at least because of the fact that within a lot of movement conversations, the question, what's sort of seen as the, um, let's say the kind of North Star that folks orient themselves to is this question of kind of building something at scale. Like we can't simply be satisfied with being able to effectively mobilize a campaign, say just in Baltimore or in Philadelphia, Chicago, San Francisco, what have you, but how do we operate at scale? And that is mostly articulated as like a kind of logistical organizational question and not a geographical one. And I, I, I at least appreciate the way in which you framed it as a geographical question that is about thinking broadly about how to encompass a range of folks and being able to sort of, in doing so, align folks who come from different places and are dealing with different circumstances around points of common interest, essentially. Um, and that's kind of like the class in itself versus for itself kind of question. Um, I wanted to come back, though, to something we had kind of touched on earlier when we were talking about this question of kind of the role of liberals and centrists in the black community. And just one wanted to touch on the fact that while we noted the decline of unions, that unions aren't haven't been the only organization in the black community that have served as a basis for working class mobilization. I'm thinking about, you know, the way in which you've articulated changes that have taken place in the church, right? Or other institutions that have undercut the ways in which black working class folks have been in the position to organize in their own interests. And I wanted to know if you could just speak to the ways in which institutions that remain in the black community, right, that haven't been decimated the same way unions have have been undercut or have seen their political agendas pivot. And in doing so, um, if it's not too much, if you could kind of 
like articulate for folks who aren't familiar with the neoliberal turn as you articulate it, if you could just kind of offer kind of like a working definition for for people who are maybe new to some of your work. Okay, so when I talk about the neoliberal turn for the sake of um, of, of a podcast, I'm talking about a set of policy shifts that began in the 70s and really crystallized in the uh, in the mid 90s or so. And those policy shifts are uh, basically reorient government and other major non-market institutions towards the market. They make them work according to market principles of of competition, of of choice, of kind of entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, So those shifts include, those policy shifts including, include policy shifts that reduce the power of labor to organize, that significantly reduce the ability of the government, uh, of municipalities to, uh, and governments at every scale to collect taxes, that significantly reduce the scope and scale of the welfare state, that privatize a number of public resources, either explicitly or through the introduction of public-private partnerships. Um, so uh, like in, in uh, Baltimore, for example, some of Baltimore's public transportation is actually managed by a private firm. And although Baltimore folk uh, defeated it, there was an attempt to privatize its water. Right? There are a number of, of, of cities that now have private, private firms managing their water and their garbage, et cetera. And then the other thing, uh, the fifth thing is a significant increase in the scope and the scale of the carceral state. So in most cities, that just, that, that just means a significant increase in the influence that police have. Now, this uh, this is not just a dynamic that governments undergo. You mentioned the black church. If you look at uh, black churches, black churches have increasingly been forced to become entrepreneurial over time. Uh, and increasingly, there's a segment of, of black churches that have begun to kind of connect the Bible to basically capitalist precepts. So that's basically the prosperity gospel in a nutshell. Like if you, uh, it articulates the Bible as kind of an entrepreneurial self-help guide. And the more you're in line with biblical principles, the better off, the uh, the more wealthy you'll be. Uh, But then there's also another move where uh, you see black neoliberal churches do this, but a range of other churches do this as well, where as the ability of government to provide resources and to collect taxes for the purpose of distributing resources decreases, and you've got these kind of nonprofits coming in in the middle, you have a number of churches who've actually created uh, community uh, development corporations, right? Not all of those churches are, are, are neoliberal ones. Some of them are liberal ones where they really believe in wanting, they, they really want black communities to thrive and to do well, but because their government, the local government spun hollowed out, like the best thing they have is creating this this uh, this nonprofit corporation that ends up shunting off uh, or and narrowing political possibility. Where the people within churches like that they don't think of government as something that they can go to or wield for the purpose of developing the public uh, the public good. They they instead you know go this other route. Mm-hmm. So with that being. The landscape, right, that marks, you know, cities like Baltimore, uh, a host of uh, especially black urban communities across the country. 
Um, and also the dynamic that we sort of touched on earlier where it's so easy for folks to sort of associate things that are public with things that are bad, right? That they're going to be deficient if it's like a public school or if it's public housing, public transportation, so forth. What are folks on the black left to do? Barring the sort of bigger picture questions, what are some sort of basic things to be done that folks on the black left should, those who consider themselves on the black left, should look to do to be able to kind of navigate and sort of push back against the current kind of circumstance, um, things as they are? <laughs> the, trifling, the trifling thing is go to church. <laughs> right uh now now the thing is is there <laughs> now it's not like black like like a it's not like there is the black church there isn't has never been it's not like black churches is it like go to go to go to church and become a deacon is that what you're saying <laughs> see how good god is uh <laughs> it's it hey hey now <laughs> Hey it's not that as if there is only one black church. It's not as if the black church is the only thing. I'm just using that as an example because that's what we're talking about. But that there are a range of institutions that uh, black folk who are on the left aren't necessarily a part of that we actually need to be a part of in order to rearrange, begin to rearrange uh, black common sense. Because that Toussaint, that that point you brought up. So it's not just about policies. It's about rendering, about creating a world in which the public either doesn't exist or it's automatically bad. Anything that you put public in front of sucks. On the other hand, anything private or is connected to business or is connected to that to market stuff is dope, right? That's literally that 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 is really what it is. So what it requires is it requires at the very least, us becoming members of these organizations. You know, I'm going to shout out Makani Themba. Makani Themba is one of the dopest and baddest organizers on the left that we have in Black communities. And I remember talking to her a couple of decades ago when we were, uh, when I had just moved to Baltimore. And she was talking about how she's like a, not just a member of the NAACP, she's like a life member of the NAACP. And I was like, what? But but if you think about it, you know, that makes sense. And let's say I'm getting this story totally wrong. And McConaughey, if I'm, I'm getting it wrong, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I so apologize. But, but, but it's like there are a range of institutions that black people have that we're not in. And we should be in all of them. Mm-hmm. The one thing I thought when you said that, that Lester, was um, there's a tendency to, amongst uh, the good size strata of the black left to create alternative institutions. And um, I know where the folks are coming from. Me too. But and I, and I get also the benefits when they're done. Yep. But you're raising the the, the other side too as well, that we, that we don't need a, a a a tight small set of us. We need a maybe a little less tight, larger set of us. And also, I mean, what I hear you saying is, in addition to participating in, in those institutions, part of what needs to be done is also, I keep saying that, I keep, <laughs> keep drawing on that phrase, but also like struggling with ideas, right? And also um, helping this question of common sense, helping to kind of shift the kind of basic 
presumptions that folks are operating off of and shift the kind of center of gravity of those institutions as well. That's yeah, yeah, and it requires two parallel moves, right? So, so if you look at somebody like a James Boggs, James Boggs would say explicitly, like, you don't have to be a part of my, you're not going to be a part of my organizations. Like, they're going to be organizations I have. Well, the only people who are in them are people who are struggling around these ideas or around this issue the way we struggle around, around these issues, right? But at the same time, he, he's a member of all these other organizations, right? That so because we need them, we need both. We need both approaches. We need people to be. We need spaces like this and organizational spaces like this. But then we we those don't by definition those don't contain all black people. So I got to begin to, like I say, land this plane. Um, it's funny, Lustin, you and I talked, you were saying, man, we can't cover this in an hour. I'm saying, yes, we can. And I say, Lustin, you were right, okay? <laughs> um, and people know people know me. It's rare I say I'm wrong, by the way, publicly. It's very rare to happen. I would say I was wrong publicly, okay? So um, that, that's happened today. But I do want to say one last thing to kind of ask some closing questions. What we haven't talked about at all is the rise in, in authoritarianism. And how you deal with that, and 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 how you talk about building a black left, and and how do you get a more powerful black left in the course of fighting authoritarianism? And um, I'll say, make a statement. You can respond. Then land the planes. I say, I think that because the dominant form, I think, we're seeing this turn to the right authoritarianism is through electoral means. I mean, electoral means an important arena for struggle. To the extent the GOP is kind of, you know, full-fledged authoritarianism, basic authoritarian, then we can't allow them to control the House or the Senate or the White House. We know what they, we know what they would do. I, I doubt that the Trump would be the new FDR, right? If it's super important to stop that from happening, this whole question of United Front and how we behave, how we talk, is super complicated. Um, and I'll just say that and, and let you have the last word on that issue for today, at least. And I want to ask some other questions. Man. So, yes, I mean, I'm, I'm a political scientist for a reason. I believe that politics, including I don't believe that politics should be limited to electoral politics, but I think politics should include electoral politics. And it's not just about making sure that these offices aren't held by basically Nazis. Uh, and fascists, but it's also about developing and redeveloping a certain type of approach to democracy within black the black left and within black communities. Because one of the things we lose when we're not in spaces where we're lit, where we're debating and we have to make decisions, and then we have to live by decisions that we don't win, uh, where we have to kind of be represented by people who aren't us we and we, we and we can't necessarily rely on the fact that we like the same music we grew up in the same neighborhood we have to figure out some other way to figure out who's going to represent us and we have to figure out some way to hold all those folk accountable so it's not just about creating a political tendency or engaging uh or creating this broad political force to resist uh the attempt to end democracy in the united states but it's also about developing a certain type, redeveloping a certain type of political com uh, democratic culture in black communities. Because if, if we do it, uh, and I think, and this relates to other elements of the conversation we just had, it comes from us. We, what we do has the potential 
to change what have to shift what happens to everything else. And it's not genetic or it's not cultural. It's because of the unique circumstances of uh, United States historical development. But it's on us. That's good, man. Last couple of questions, man. I know you love music, okay? But give me a couple of thi- of, of music that kind of keeps you driving, keeps you going, man. You're down the dumps. What do you turn on, man? Uh, you know what? I'm uh, I'm a uh, I love house music. House music all night long. So what I do is I'll either DJ a set myself, um, you know, with my equipment in the basement, or I'll listen to somebody like a Charisma, or I'll listen to somebody like a Minx in Detroit. Uh, Charisma's a Baltimore DJ, or uh, like a Bread Dancer when he gets on, or Kai Alsey in, in Atlanta. I, I like DJ sets. Now, if you're talking about you get like. An artist, an artist. I, uh, I think Kamasi Washington has got some new stuff coming out, and mm-hmm. um, he, he, uh, I love his music. His music is soaring, but um, but that's 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 how I get down. That's cool, man. And what are you reading, man? What, what you reading? Uh, so I just got uh, Marlon James's second book of his Dark Star trilogy. Mar- Marlon James is a Caribbean author. He wrote one of the best novels of 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 like that 70s 80s 90s period in a brief history of seven killings uh and he's turned toward fantasy in this uh in uh this dark star trilogy and what what i love about there are a number of things to love about the work but for fantasy folk who live on trilogies his trilogy is unique in that his trilogy tells the same story through three different sets of characters Oh, wow. You know, wow. so if you think about one of the things, yeah, so to the extent we can talk about kind of a a black philosophical approach, our philosophical approach to truth is very different than the West, than the, the Western non-black, because, you know, black are the, you know, the black people make the West. The Western non-black approach to, approach to truth is very, very different. And that idea of having three sets of folk tell the same story and it each be true from their perspective, is really, 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 really rich. So I'm looking forward to digging into it. That's cool, man. Listen, thanks a great deal, man. I, I'm so glad we got to sit down and talk. This has been dope. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate y'all work, and um, this is this is a blessing. Okay, appreciate, it, man. I joked with Lester at the end of our conversation that we could have talked for a much longer period of time. Well, after we turned off the mic, the three of us did keep talking. And you know how you might go to a party and have a good time, and then go to the after party and have a better time? Well, let's just say, I wish we had kept the mic on. We will need to have Lester back. I really appreciated Lester's comments about power being manifested and durable shifts in governing authority because it highlights the need for change that that lasts over time and the need to actually run various arenas impacting black working class life. One challenge that that Lester issued to the black left was to gain a real footing in black civil society beyond the academy. Another was to take the notable shift in mainstream non-conservative politics since 2020 and push that shift further to the left. We will explore both of those challenges in future episodes. And before I go, please don't forget about a fundraising campaign. Please go to Patreon at www.patreon.com, look for Black Work Talk, and sign up to become a monthly contributor. If you can only make a one-time contribution, that's fine. 
What works for you works for me. Until next time, stay safe and be well.